Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbur Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends Giselle Donnelly. I also work at AEI and Yulia Zoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Paula Erizanu, journalist and author who has written about Central and Eastern Europe, Moldova, Romania, for outlets ranging from The Guardian to the FT to London Review of Books. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Paula, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, you've written on a wide range of subjects pertaining to to the region, uh, from its cultural history um, to to the current events. And, and probably we want to start with what is at the forefront of everybody's mind right now in, in, in Washington and beyond, namely the, the febrile situation in Transnistria and and the risks of pertaining to, 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 to the Russian presence there. Just how acute is the Russian threat at this stage of, 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 of the war that Russia is waging against Ukraine and against, uh, against the broader post-Soviet space? Thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, so since the front, you know, the war front has moved further um, southeast rather than southwest in Ukraine, um, that is giving us some respite and um, um, Moldovans don't feel quite as um, threatened militarily um, as a result. But of course, Russia controls um, the secret services in Transnistria and it has all sorts of agents of influence in Transnistria, in Gagauzia, in Moldova itself. Um, beyond these autonomous regions. And also, you know, we are um, 100% dependent uh, on Russian gas and um, we get our electricity, most of it, 70% of it, from Transnistria. And on top of that, we um, um, are the kind of the most affected economically by the war um, after Ukraine. Um, So our inflation rate is somewhere at 30, 35%. And it's been like that for months. Our trade has been affected. You know, there are um, hundreds of lorries that are waiting uh, on the border between Romania and Moldova um, because Odessa is not able to uh, function as a port. Um, and, uh, and, and so uh, Moldova is struggling economically and um, also politically it's in um, a fragile position and um, what we are witnessing now on the political front in Moldova is that um, the kind of the oligarchs who have fled Moldova because they were afraid um, that the new government in place uh, since Maya Sandu's election as a president um, they're afraid of, of justice basically Sorry for this. and um, and so um, they are actually, in a way, um, fighting on the same front as as Russia. So uh, the the government in Moldova is now um, targeted by both Russians and our own oligarchs who have fled the country and who are joining forces 
um, in order to destabilize Moldova politically. So then what about Transnistria itself? Um, what about the oligarchs there and the Russian influence there? How threatening is that right now in the perception of the capital of Kishino itself? If I can just add to that, because there, there, was, there was a point in, in, in the war where we saw these very blatant false flag operations in, 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 in Tiraspol that raised a sort of real concern in my in my view, a sort of justified concern about a prospective Russian invasion, takeover of Moldova, overthrow of 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 of, of Maya Sandu's administration and, and 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 the government in place. Uh, have we seen anything like that repeat itself since this was late spring, I believe? Um, and if, if 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 regardless of what the answer is, you know, what what, what is the Moldovan government doing to to sort of you know solidify the the, the security of the of the of, of, of the country and, and 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 prevent you know similar similar scenarios from from unfolding in the future. Transnistria's elite is um, kind of divided in two parts, at least. Um, the uh, the economy of Transnistria is dominated by this monopoly called Sheriff, which owns everything from the football club uh, that you know has just. Um, Uh, participated in the Champions League last year uh, to um, telephone uh, companies, telecommunications, to malls, to um, um, drink grocery stores, grocery stores, um, uh, drink factories, etc., distilleries. Um, so these guys, um, Krasnoselsky, who is the so-called president of Transnistria, and um, Uh, Viktor Goshan, who is the co-founder and owner of Sheriff, um, they their interest is peace uh, because they have um, business interests in Ukraine. They um, uh, they have links to Germany. Um, they trade with the EU. So um, yesterday, uh, the Moldovan authorities gave the. Uh, environmental permit to this metal um, factory that um, generates about half of uh, Transnistria's ex exports and which is linked to, um, basically that means uh, what they do is that they get old metals from Romania and they uh, recycle them and then they re-export them to the EU. Um, so Transnistria is very... Um, well integrated in the European economy as a result. And because uh, in Ukraine there is war at the moment, their trade with Ukraine, which was um, also important, is not possible anymore. And therefore, all of all of their trade is now reoriented towards um, Europe um, and through Moldova. Um, so that's one side. Uh, these are my dogs, sorry. So that's one side of the um, of the elite. Uh, there is also the elite that is closer to the Kremlin, and those are the um, intelligence services, and they are the ones who are uh, following orders and who are destabilizing um, uh, the the situation more uh, than um, the kind of the oligarchic elite is. Uh, or so analysts say, and 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 and, it, and my government sources seem to um, align with that. But um, uh, regarding the false bomb alerts, uh, the or the kind of false flags in 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 um, 
uh, in spring, in April and May. Um, those haven't been repeated since, but instead what we have had have been uh, over 150 false bomb alerts in Moldova itself, um, at the airport of Chisinau, um, but also in kind of um, uh, important state institutions all across uh, all across the country, in hospitals, etc. So that means evacuating um, lots of people um, and uh, using state resources, um, you know, in order to make sure that there's no uh, actual security threat. And also something else that we've had have been cyber attacks on state in institutions. So there was one kind of um, relatively famous attack a few weeks ago when our fiscal services were um, attacked right before, uh, it was last month and it was right before, uh, or July, I think, um, it was right before people had to pay tax. So that disrupted um, uh, the process for, for a day and there was this message on um, a Russian hacker group saying we have, uh, um, uh, we are striking in the heart of Moldova or we have um, struck the heart of Moldova um, and like we're going to do such damage and we're so proud of it. Um, so basically what we've seen is that um, the kind of these kind of terror attacks and kind of false terror attacks have moved from Transnistria into Moldova. Um, there haven't been explosions, but um, there has been a lot of disruption um, to um, state activity and to economic activity and political activity. And actually something else that's changed is that um, when the Moldovan authorities um, imposed the Transnistrian authorities to always ask for permission from Chisinau in, um, in order to leave Moldova, something that they should have done 30 years ago, um, there was a cyber attack again on, on the presidency and on the uh, Ministry of Reintegration, uh, just so that, you know, they threaten um, the local authority, the kind of national authorities, and they, um, they show their muscle, basically, um, and um, hint to what may happen uh, if something that they don't like um, will uh, be decided in Chisinau. It's it's very difficult, especially for uh, you know a silly American like myself, to really quantify the the level of the threat and the the danger. And it also would makes me wonder, you know, can't we solve this problem um, as a sort of geostrategic matter? It's it's pretty important because Moldova and Transnistria can have been and could remain kind of an Achilles heel in Southeastern Europe. But that does not, you know, really reflect the actual balance of power. And certainly, you know, assuming some sort of good outcome in Ukraine um, will make it really difficult for the the uh, corrupt oligarchs who need the European market and would want to reaccess the Ukrainian market. Um, and it doesn't seem like the Russians will be able to bring that much to the table beyond these kinds of denial of server or service attacks, which, you know, other small states, the Balts, for example, have, have learned to deal with quite effectively. So 
you know, how big, how big a job would it be to really, if not, you know, you can't entirely eliminate these sorts of things, but to get it to the point where um, uh, Moldova would be stable politically and strategically and Russian influence would be uh, pretty well eradicated. Uh, and after that, we can deal with the corruption part. Um, I mean, there are several um, issues. I mean, you've kind of given your answer, you know, within the... Question. I know. It was, it, was, it was a statement in the form of a question. Uh, but we are dependent on Russian gas, and um, we have to uh, become more resilient from an energetic point of view in order to... From an energy You're not alone in that... <laughs> That category to be able, you know, to say, oh, um, you know, let's uh, let's reintegrate Transnistria. There will also be a problem of hearts and minds in Transnistria, like in Gagauzia, because um, these two regions have their own kind of um, media landscape, their own um, uh, regulators, um, um, their own school kind of curriculum. And in Transnistria, you know, kids learn from a young age that Moldovans have killed them in 1992 in the war. Um, and so you know, some of my friends who um, uh, come from Transnistria and um, came to study in Kishno, for instance, um, you know, they told me, oh, wow, when we came to Kishno, we expected to see enemies everywhere. And actually, <laughs> things are not quite the same as we learned back home. Um, so that will be a challenge. Um, and the government has announced a kind of uh, a national program to learn Romanian in Gagawizia, for instance. Um uh, starting uh, in uh, um, next year, at the beginning of next year, and if they um, do that, and you know, if that is successful, maybe they could replicate the same model in Transnistria as well, um, because um, the linguistic um, um, kind of having one language, you know, to um, communicate with with each other um, would uh, unify um, the space a bit more. Um, so there are those issues. And then also, obviously, I mean, what Ukraine has to win the war in order for this to happen. And Moldova has to be welcomed, you know, to get closer to the EU and inside the EU in order to, um, be attractive from an economic point of view and, um, to uh, Transnistria, um, and, and, and to people living there because, um, Transnistria is confronted with even more um, immigration than the rest of Moldova um, is, and that's because of the kind of the economic opportunities there being limited. Because you know this monopoly um, basically sucks all of the resources. Um, but uh, yeah, um, energy is a big question, um, and and I guess if that gets solved, you know, at a kind of EU level, um, maybe. Um, we could jump on the same wagon. Uh, meanwhile, the government um, is trying to kind of um, uh, incentivize uh, solar panels and solar energy and alternative sources of energy, but um, that won't happen overnight, of course. So you, you mentioned the word, the expression jumping on the wagon, and I think we would be remiss on this podcast if we didn't raise um, the um, the Moldovan submission to this year's Eurovision. <laughs> Trend letter, if I'm mispronouncing it, it is a wonderful 
inner piece of popular culture. I urge everybody to, you know, Google the song. We should include it in the show notes. Um, and it, 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 it strikes me that uh, one of the sort of underlying messages of the song, or, or maybe it's very explicit in the lyrics. I mean, I don't, I can't really. Uh, it is explicit. <laughs> I can't really decipher the, um, the, 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 the language. Is that there is a strong cultural affinity between you know, Moldova and Romania. Uh, and, and, and one wonders if, you know, Moldova's European future does not lie in some form of, you know, political reunification with, with Romania, which obviously would raise this question of what happens to Transnistria and, 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 and clearly the public mood there is, is in a very different place than, than the, than the rest of, than in the rest of Moldova, but we have precedents for, you know, countries going in different ways peacefully. I was born and brought up in Czechoslovakia, which, you know, divided itself in 1993 only for the two countries to you know find themselves again in the European Union and NATO and, and and they now have a very good very good relationship. So is there a debate at any level in, in Moldova about you know how to somehow you know unfreeze this frozen conflict, this this sort of you know festering wound that's been that, that's been really dragging Moldova uh, like throughout its its sort of existence since since the 1990s and preventing it from from really being a full-fledged candidate for for you know membership in the eu and nato and whether you know some form of federalization or yeah i'm just making this up with 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 with, with romania would be would be an answer uh is 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 or or is is this you know am i completely sort of missing where where where, where the conversation is I mean, at, at a popular level, you know, when the war first started in um, February and March, there was more, um, there were more voices saying, um, can we reunite with, reunite with Romania? You know, yeah. they're a NATO member state. Can we, like, just get this protection, um, solve this issue that we've been talking about, from, you know, since the late 80s? And before, um, but um, I mean, to be honest, it's like the Romanian government um, has never, you know, been open to reunifying with Moldova. They had, they were not open in um, in the early nineties when Ion Miliescu was a president because he was a close ally of the Kremlin. Uh, and he refused um, the offers of uh, President Moldovan President Demir Chesnegur, um to um, unite. Um, there were three offers that were made, and um, they were all rejected then. And so, and um, I don't see any more kind of openness today with um, today's kind of authorities in Bucharest. Um, they are happy to help Moldova in other ways, in other important ways, um, but that's the limit. Um, in terms of the conflict in Transnistria, I think the general atmosphere, um, you know, the, the po- what the people think is, well, I mean, what, what, what Transnistria sparks right now is fear. Um, rather than any kind of 
brainstorming about so, you know solutions to solve this conflict right now because every and and even at the authorities level you know it's now is not the moment to kind of anger russia you know um while they are so close to our border um and to destabilize things there so i think what the authorities are trying to do in kishno is to keep things stable in transnistria and this is why they for instance gave this environmental permit to this metal factory you know because they don't want to be harassed they don't want to destabilize the situation there um so um whether we might at some point if you know um if moldova and transnistria separate i'm not sure what the fate of transnistria is like will it unite with ukraine or like what's gonna happen you know um yeah these are just some some thoughts um at this stage i think at the latest you know there the situation might change i hope and, and i think all of us on this podcast don't want to speak for my colleagues but you know that looking you know it's not wrong to think about what the effects <clears throat> of a comprehensive defeat of Russia in Ukraine and full return of sovereignty to Ukraine uh, would mean. I mean, the, the geopolitical conditions would be, you know, all but reversed. And again, I mean, uh, uh, failing to get onto that train would be, you know, a sort of act of self-harm that... Uh, some people, you know, the, the Germans seem determined to inflict upon themselves, but but particularly for for states that have lived in this no man's land of Eastern Europe for for thirty plus years, um, you know, again, I would just think that <clears throat> that moment th and thinking about how to make the most of that moment is not, uh, you know, a silly thing to do. If I can add to that, um, you know, what you said earlier that you think it's rather a problem now um, of Romania not wanting um, reunification um, struck me because um, you never hear that in Romania. The Romanian perspective is, oh, the Moldovans don't want to join. Um, and I, we know, you and I and many, that this has been politicized over and over again, but I wonder if you can also talk about the challenges. Um, you, you mentioned Transnistria briefly in, in this context, but the challenges of what you were discussing earlier, hearts and minds. Um, and I'll throw kind of this um, bone that I'm sure you, you followed, but many of our um, audience has not because it was so marginal in regional politics. The other day, the president of Moldova was in Gagosia, this region that you keep mentioning, and in a conversation um, with leaders there, put on the table the fact that they should be learning Romanian too. And uh, the one of the leaders, um, they had an exchange, uh, her and him in Russian, and he accused her of, why are you saying you're speaking Romanian? You're speaking Moldovan. Um, and so 
that's kind of confusing. There's been a lot, another discussion about, is there a Moldovan language? No, it's not. In the constitution of Moldova, it's written that, that Romanian is the language. But, but that's not the important story. The important story is this pushback um, through Russian propaganda that you have alluded to over the last 30 years in terms of what would it look like if Moldova would make now a sudden move either towards saying, oh, we want to reunite with, with Romania or publicly, or we are considering NATO, because even that is you know, the neutrality is kind of a thing. They want to join, Moldova wants to join the EU. The EU is not neutral, but doesn't want to join NATO because of public pushback. So can you describe to us what this pushback looks like? How how badly, how seriously you are assessing um, Russian influence um, in Moldova? And we haven't had a dog on in a while. That's good. That's right. Yulia, get your dog out. He's sleeping. <laughs> uh, uh, we're we're joking that uh, my dog is launching a political party, and this is why it's lasted uh, within the, the neighborhood with other dogs because we've recently had quite a few political parties launched in Moldova. Um, well, he can run for U.S. presidential election. I think we need good candidates. Yeah, or we could open, you know, another autonomy in um, our neighborhood <laughs> in Kishino, um led by dogs. So the Gagawizia um, incident, um, you know, that rhetoric is, is very, um, it, it echoes the Soviet um, era and it echoes the kind of Kremlin-funded um parties, political parties in the 90s in Moldova. Like now, um, in Chisinau, even the Kremlin um, kind of um, friendly candidates um, say that, oh, you know, we're speaking Romanian. So, for instance, the mayor of Chisinau, Ion Chaban, who is trying to um, uh, kind of rebrand himself as pro-European after, you know, serving Russia for so many years, um, he would just um, um, insist that, you know, uh, we are speaking Romanian and ta da And um, actually, even the head of Gagauzia, Irina Vlach, you know, she has learned Romanian in her late 30s um, and made a statement out of that. Um, so these are, you know, people close to the Kremlin. And if they are making that move, you know, that shows um, that things have changed in Moldova since um, the Soviet era, when the Moldovan language uh, was um, used by the Kremlin um, in order to um, kill kind of national feelings um, that Moldovans might have with Romanians. Um, we, in terms of Russian influence in Moldova, um, I mean, at the moment, um, the authorities, the kind of regulators are trying to fight against Russian propaganda um, uh, through legal means um, and by um, punishing any kind of um, uh, any kind of um, um, break of um, journalistic um, ethics in presenting the war in Ukraine. Um, but 
the, you know, it's, it's good that this is happening, but it's a bit late <laughs> as well. Um, so a lot of people, especially Russian um, speakers, but also uh, Romanian speakers too, would have already absorbed a lot of um, Russian media and Russian culture. And um, they wouldn't necessarily, um, you know, say that it's Ukraine's fault or like they wouldn't um, believe this kind of nazification, denazification um, agenda, but they would say something like, oh, um, it's not really clear what's happening there. We might know in a few years, but not right now. Um, so it's like, you know, uh, Peter Pomerantsev's um, argument that the Russian propaganda uh, purpose has not necessarily been um, to make people believe what the Kremlin has to say, but to make people uh, not believe anything at all, to be skeptical um, and not trust anyone. Um, and you can see this um, in a lot of uh, Moldovans who have consumed uh, Russian propaganda throughout the years. Um, I, the solution to this is um, uh, more media regulation um, so that um, um, we uh, limit the access of uh, propaganda here. But the issue is actually that, you know, TV, for instance, is monitored um, and regulated, um, but YouTube is not. And a lot of these um, Russian um, propagandists have big uh, followings on YouTube as well. Um, and this is why you know Russia hasn't shut down YouTube, um, even if they've shut down other um, kind of social channels. So um, that's one big issue. And then um, the other kind of um, big issue is corruption, basically. Um, so a lot of the um, R Russian agents of influence in Moldova um, or political parties that get funding uh, from Russia, um, you know, get this funding illegally. And so if um, the, uh, the kind of judiciary reform advanced in, in Moldova and we had a more robust um, judiciary, then we could limit this Russian influence. Um, the, we could limit Russian money going into um, Moldovan politics to destabilize politics. Because they, they have always had um, this purpose to destabilize things here whenever they get um, pro-European and to um, yeah, use Moldova um, for their own interests. Because before we release you from, 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 from this podcast, I was wondering if you could give us um, a sense of what the political landscape in Moldova looks like right now. So my understanding is somebody who's looking at the region from a, from a great distance and doesn't understand the language is that broadly speaking, there are, you know, two camps, the sort of old Soviet style, sort of nostalgia driven political groups ridden with corruption and, 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 and sort of kleptocracy and a somewhat fragile sort of unified front of sort of pro-Western, pro-liberal democracy forces that now have the upper hand and finally have the opportunity to do something. Um, so, you know, how well is Maya Sandu doing 
when is the next election uh what are the odds that that the sort of you know nostalgic soviet style kleptocrats will, 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 will come back in some shape and or or, or 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 form and what are the odds that that that, that the sort of pro-western coalition can 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 stay in place for for you know longer and, and and make some sort of significant changes that will be durable i don't see any soviet nostalgia um that is mainstream i mean maybe there are you know still some people in their 80s not my grandparents but maybe you know other kind of elderly people who might be nostalgic after the social welfare state you know that they had in the soviet union because now their pensions are really low like you know 200 dollars it's um it it really you know um the elderly are poor in moldova you know when they get to retirement they don't go travel the world they are a lot of them go and um beg on the streets or sell flowers um or fruit you know on the streets because um i'm sorry because the state cannot pay them to have a decent life. But, um, sorry, um, it's just something that I think about a lot. Um, but beyond that, um, we don't have a coalition, a pro-European coalition at the moment. So Moldova is led by one pro-European party, and it's the first time actually in 30 years that a pro-European party um, has gained a majority. Um, and um, the other forces that um, are trying to um, maintain Moldova in a kind of grey zone, economic zone, um, are not Soviet style. They are more kind of oligarchic. They are this kind of um, um, weird combination between uh, maybe Soviet-style corruption and wild kind of capitalism. So the and and the heads, you know, of these movements, um, they are quite modern people who thrive in London, for instance. You know, where Yuri Platon is. Uh, or where Gheorghe Kaluk is, they are for the past year. They have lived in London um, and trying, and they're they've been trying to influence and destabilize things in Moldova from abroad. Or Ilan Shor, he is in uh, hiding in Israel. Uh, Plahotniuk spent some time in the U.S., but then um, he um, was um, expelled and so he spent some more time in Turkey and Dubai and other places. So actually um, when we're talking about the kind of anti-democracy, anti-reform um, uh, political forces, they are not so much Soviet cronies, but instead they are part of this kind of kleptocratic class, you know, global class international kleptocratic class yeah um so, so much good could be done simply by sweeping west london <laughs> uh, 
yeah, I mean, it's something that, you know, Oliver Bullo and other journalists have um, have talked about a lot, this kind of offshore um, economy that is actually impoverishing um, poor parts of the world and, and bringing this investment in, in London and other places. Um, so, um, but at the same time, something that... Um, is a problem for the pro-European party that's now leading Moldova and for Maya Sandu is that um, a lot of the media is still controlled by these oligarchs and the independent media itself um, wants to prove that it's independent and so they join the kind of agenda, um, the critical, the kind of criticism um, that um, is um, often launched by um, oligarchs or they initiate their own criticism, you know, of the policies um, that uh, the, the government is leading. And often, you know, some in some cases, this criticism is useful, you know, in and like in democracies, it's obviously useful to have um, independent media and without it, you can't have democracy. But at the same time, what we are witnessing in Moldova is that you know, this party that is actually trying to reform the country is fighting on so many fronts and um, and the risk is that, you know, our oligarchs will return uh, or Russians will come and we will lose this chance to reform the country. Um, so... Um, yeah, Moldova is in a tricky position from this point of view, and the pro-European kind of forces are in a tricky position. At the same time, you know, there are some new kind of small pro-European parties that are popping up, and maybe, you know, if um, the current party loses popularity in the next elections, uh, maybe a coalition could... Um, be uh, put in place but i think the main challenge is to um, reform the judiciary and and put these oligarchs in prison because that is the only chance that moldova will have to kind of reform itself and to go to the next chapter rather than you know be pulled back into the past well that certainly sounds like a very worthwhile agenda and we on the Eastern Front wish you all the success in achieving exactly that. Well, actually, it, sorry, it's not just the Moldovan agenda. I mean, London, you know, the UK authorities should join this. You know, they should help us bring our oligarchs into Moldova. Um, Israel should help, you know, uh, Cyprus or wherever uh, Pahotnik is hiding should help. Um, the EU should help, you know, this fight against kleptocracy is not something that can just be done by Moldova on its own. It's um, something that um, uh, the EU and the US and um, um, all the big kind of um, countries, in the rich countries should join as well. Agreed. I mean, and, and it has to be said that, especially in the United States, I mean, there have been sort of meaningful strides made in that direction. On, in terms of sort of new legislation uh, coming 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 online and and making it harder for people to hide their money in, in in the United States but obviously much more needs to be done on that note from Dalvi Rohaj and Giselle Donnelly and 
and Nuria Shoja. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. Many thanks to our special guest today, Paula Rizanu. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, aei.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch on, with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, written as one word. Um, and the Eastern Front newsletter is also, I should tell you, is now live. You can sign up for, for, for the newsletter through the link, which is included in the show notes. And you'll receive a bi-weekly update of newly released episodes, exclusive Q&A with your hosts. And you'll stay up to date with the most recent op-eds and articles from us on security challenges facing the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.